Hello everyone, Josh Reed here, producer of Take a Moment. And I know exactly what you're thinking. This is definitely not one of the angelic voices of Mari Yamaguchi and Nathan Bennett, and you would certainly be right. Those are some pretty big shoes to fill, but I will try to do so over the course of the next two episodes we'll spend together. During this holiday season, we have a special treat for you. We're calling it our Holiday Host Highlight, where we sit Mari and Nate down in the hot seat from interviewer to interviewee and get to know them on a more personal level. I know we started off strong in our first season and we didn't get a chance to really dive into who Nate and Mari really are. And that's what we'll do over the next two episodes. First off, we started with Nathan Bennett. And you guys have heard Nate over the course of our two seasons and he is just a goofy, charismatic guy. And we really get to the root on why he is the way he is. He started off actually as a stage actor in the Actors Union of New York and Chicago. And we get to know him a little bit more and his, his nerdy passion for Shakespeare, which is awesome. We'll also talk a little bit about his transition from being an actor to Genesis. He started here in product marketing and it actually has transitioned into the director of brand story. Now I know what you're thinking, what does that mean? Well, we take some time and explain what exactly he does in his role. And he even shares some key pieces of advice that he could give your company and why brand story is important. And we'd be remiss during this holiday season not to talk about the holidays. So we talk a little bit about some of the traditions that he celebrated when he was a child growing up, as well as some of the traditions he started with his wife now. Not to give it all away, but it involves three L's, names withheld, being hidden around your house. It was an amazing conversation, and I cannot wait for you to listen. So sit back, relax, and please take a moment with us. All right, Nathan Bennett, how are you doing, sir? I am well, thank you very much, and how are you? Not too bad. I'm going to do the best of my ability to uh, fill the shoes that is Nathan Bennett and Mari Yamaguchi in this conversation. Uh, what I want to do first is I want to get to know you a little bit more, a little bit of your history. So if you could tell me a little bit about where you grew up. I know you graduated in South Carolina with two degrees in theater. Is that correct? I did. I did. I got my bachelor's and my master's in theater. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your time as an actor and in the Actors Union and what you specialized in? Yeah, so I grew up outside of Chicago and um, I got interested in acting sort of maybe around my junior high year. I think until my seventh or eighth grade year, I always wanted to be a police officer. And I'm not sure where that came from other than like watching a lot of TV shows where police officers were really, really cool. Like they were the coolest people in the room. Absolutely. And so I always thought that that was what I wanted to be until... One day, uh, my English teacher in junior high, uh, she was a new English teacher. She'd just come to um, uh, to our school, and she had a lot of background in theater and literature and stuff like that. And she instilled in me this love for Shakespeare and Shakespeare's plays, and she insisted that we read these plays out loud. They're not meant to be read, you know, silently by yourself uh, off the page. So in our class, you know, she had us read Romeo and Juliet aloud. And to me, I just got into it really, really quickly. And I loved it. And I didn't know. It just kind of made sense to me. And I was enthralled with the stories. Um, and she came to me later and said, hey, we're doing this competition. It's kind of like a speech and drama competition. 
and uh, would you like to be involved in it? And I'd never done anything like that before. I had tried my hand at a number of different art forms and hobbies and totally failed at them. Like I tried to be uh, a visual artist and I tried to draw <laughs> um, ships and boats and uh, baskets of apples uh, tumbling out. And I would enter these uh, competitions, these art competitions, and I would get like the yellow ribbon that mm -hmm. was like, hey, you're terrible, but thanks for submitting. You know? <laughs> thanks so, for participating. Yeah, today. thanks for participating. You get a yellow ribbon. And so it, and I, I, for some reason, I just, I don't know, nothing was clicking, nothing was clicking. And I was never really good at sports or anything like that. Um, but there was something that clicked in me when she had me start uh, memorizing pieces of literature and then like sort of getting up in front of people and adding a performance element to those pieces of literature. Mm -hmm. And then she had me entering various uh, competitions and I started to do better and better. And then I kind of thought, well, man, you know, maybe, maybe this is my thing. Maybe I can do this. Um, so I ended up, my parents were very, very supportive of that. Uh, in fact, my mother worked for, I, I kind of grew up watching my mother be a public speaker and a motivational speaker. Um, and when I would go to work with her and listen to her speak in front of rooms full of 20, 30, 50 people and hold their attention and motivate them, I didn't know what was happening, but I think all that stuff was sort of seeping into my brain. And for some reason I was like, man, I, I wanna do that. I, I love what my mom is doing for other people and I would love to be able to do that in the future. So I did go to uh, school for theater. I uh, got a great education in, in classical acting and, and literature and got my master's degree in that as well. And uh, years down the road, I started acting professionally on stage. Um, I became a member of the Actors Union. I acted in New York, uh, outside of Chicago, Washington, D.C., North Carolina, a lot of other places um, around the country. And I just had a great time doing it. I met some of the best friends I have ever made in my life. And it was a tremendous, tremendous time. Uh, I'm very, very thankful for that. I would not be who I am today without that. Uh, however, as I was a struggling actor in New York City in my early 30s, uh, I just began to think, man, I, it's tough to sustain. Yes, yes, uh, it is. <laughs> it's tough to sustain a living when you know you work for three months and then you're literally looking for another job for another yeah. month or three months or six months, and so you're doing gigs in between there. And I started realizing that I had uh, an affinity for more uh, business and leadership situations, and. Um, I started working more for businesses and more mm -hmm. in leadership positions and managing teams and uh, managing budgets and stuff like that. So I was slowly getting drawn away from the theater world uh, more into the into the business world. And I guess what kind of brought me to Genesis was um, in 2016, uh, I was working at a really, really beautiful uh, retirement resort in Florida. Okay. And I was in charge of the entire food and fine dining operations there. And um, really, really tough job. Really, really tough job. Sure, and sure. was uh, I was good at it, but I, I it was one of those things where I thought, every day I'm going to get fired. Every day I'm <laughs> going to get fired. And like I'm having, you know, these heart palpitations and I can't sleep at night because there's so much, you know, it was a, it was a tough job to do. And um, one of my old and uh, oldest and best friends that I had known for 20 years, happened to work for Genesis and I had never okay. heard of Genesis before. And he kind of contacted me out of the blue and he said, Hey, you know, we're looking for storytellers, uh, to join my team. 
And I, uh, are you interested? And I was like, yes, uh, of course, but I have no idea what you guys do. <laughs> I have, you know, and so, you know, he, he gave me, you know, a couple months to kind of brush up on what Genesis was, okay. um, and kind of figure out what Genesis does and the space that we're occupying and the problem that we're solving. And I got, uh, miraculously got hired onto Genesis in 2016. And man, what an incredible journey it's been since then. It's been super exciting. I have learned so much, met incredible people, and just had an amazing time. So, wow, that was a super long explanation for your very first question. <laughs> no, no, it was perfect. It was perfect. So, uh, just picture this for me. You're gonna, you're, you're in a theater. You got a bag of popcorn in your lap. You're 10 years old. Uh, the movie's about to start. The credits are starting to go. Uh, the trailer's just ended. What are you seeing, and what influence did that movie have on your journey to become an actor? Oh man, that's that's a cool question. I don't know if I'd be able to narrow it down to like one movie, but I do remember uh, my mom would take me to the theater um, in the afternoon in the summers. Sure, we'd sure. go to a movie together every week or so, and it was kind of like the thing that she and I did together. And I just remember it. I don't remember, you know, one actor or one movie specifically, but I mm -hmm. remember experiencing the stories. And I think that's what it was. I just remember kind of sitting in a dark theater with my like popcorn or my nachos or whatever. Yep. And uh, with my mom experiencing a story for the first time and letting that story kind of um, envelop you mm -hmm. and engage you and, and hold on to you. And I think that's the thing that that drew me to it. I think that was the thing more so than than any other actor that I you know wanted to be or wanted to model myself after. I think I just fell in love with storytellers and storytelling yeah. and different methods of doing that. On the flip side of that, so we, we talked about movies. I know that you have a passion for Shakespeare and um, stage acting. What would you say uh, influenced you most when you were pursuing your career as an actor? Was it a specific play from Shakespeare that really spoke to you, or was it a series of plays from you know multiple writers? Um, you know, could you tell tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I don't know. Not to not to geek out because I'm sure our listeners don't really <laughs> care what I think about Shakespeare, but um, I, I think I was able to work at um, big you know Shakespeare theaters like the mm -hmm. Shakespeare Theater in Washington D.C. and um, uh, Folger Theater in Washington D.C. as well, and these are like shrines of Shakespeare and Shakespeare plays and Shakespeare acting. And I yeah. just, uh, being on stage with some of these other actors who had been doing what they were doing so well for so long, um, just really, really was a huge learning experience for me. But I think my thing with Shakespeare, my affinity to Shakespeare was, I didn't feel, I felt like Shakespeare's plays told gigantic stories mm -hmm. and told them in the best possible way with the best possible language. And each word mattered and each pause mattered. So to me, it was, I've never been uh, talented at music in any way, but to me, it was akin to kind of playing a concerto or, or playing this really complex piece of music, which I wouldn't yeah. be able to do. But for some reason I could, uh, to the best of my ability, could play the notes of a Shakespeare play. And I think that uh, gave me an affinity for language and precision and how to communicate, which is ironic because mm -hmm. I'm rambling now. But I was really drawn to the kind of larger than life characters that still had truth to them, mm -hmm. like your King Lears and your Othello's. My, my, I think still my favorite character in literature today is Iago, who is a terrible, terrible evil person mm -hmm. uh, in the play Othello. But I think it's one of the most... Um, is evil as he is, I think he's hilarious 
and I think he's the best like uh, villain that's been created out of modern minds just because yeah. he's so brilliant, so funny, so charming, and just um, horrible at his core. Um, but yeah, yeah, man, I, we could, I, if we have six hours, I'd love to continue to talk about Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What's amazing to me is that Shakespeare has influenced, uh, even modern writing so yeah. much. Like you take the stories, uh, and the plays that Shakespeare used to write and you compare them to some of the entertainment that we are, we're getting now. Like the Lion King is even kind of, you know, mirroring. It's some Hamlet. Of, yeah, it's Hamlet. Yeah, exactly. the Lion King is Hamlet. Right. And it just, you know, astounds me that something, uh, like a Shakespearean play could be so profound in the entertainment entertainment business that you just you can adapt so many stories from you know, just a play that was written centuries ago. It's universal. It's the universal quality of what Shakespeare put into his stories. And exactly. that's why we still uh, study him in school. That's why we still a lot of people pay a lot of money to put on his plays and to go see them as well, because they're huge. They're grandiose. Uh, they have complex language oftentimes, but they speak to human truths about human beings. And it's those truths that transcend the 400 years since you know Shakespeare was writing, 400 years plus. So yeah, absolutely. So your career as an actor, you get this opportunity here at Genesis, which is a, a large, successful technology company. And you started off in product marketing. And mm -hmm. recently, you started your role as the director of Brand Story. Right. How about you tell our listeners uh, what exactly that means and what you primarily focus on here at Genesis? I, I think... One of the things that companies struggle with is telling their story to the public. Mm -hmm. And I've just started my role. I, I'm, I, I love it. I love the team that I'm working on or the team that I'm working for. And one of the things that we're trying to do is to really tell the Genesis story to the public in a way that's compelling, mm -hmm. in a way that's clear, in a way that lets our customers and those who may know us or not know us uh, really know what our core values are, yeah. uh, what our company goals are, and what we're really passionate about and why we're passionate about solving those problems. So my role is to help us do that, to help us facilitate uh, how we show up to the rest of the world. I know that you know brand is ultimately controlled by our customers. I know we get to you know decide how we show up, but really it's our customers who decide what our brand is and it's my passion to make sure that our customers uh, really have the the right picture of us, the accurate picture of us, our people, our culture, and how we can really show up uh, to help them overcome their obstacles in their business. Absolutely. So then here's the million dollar question. Uh, you, director of Brand Story, you have one piece of advice that you get to give our listeners today to successfully and meaningfully tell a story in their company. What is that advice that you would hmm. give to, to a person who tries to aspire to create that, that top-notch story and brand? Wow. Uh, that is a million-dollar question. I think there, uh, there are probably a million better answers than the one that I might give. <laughs> but uh, I think from my viewpoint, one of the key things is clarity. Okay. Clarity, clarity, clarity. I think um, it's been said by people smarter than me, if you confuse, you lose. Noise is the enemy. And I think there is a, many business leaders have a curse of knowledge about their products. They know everything inside and out about their products, their, their platforms and that sort of thing. So they think that you know, their customers or their potential customers know all of that stuff too. And the mm -hmm. problem is they probably don't. 
and customers will buy the the products that are communicated to them the clearest. Mm -hmm. And so if we can uh, clarify our message, what we do, why we do it, and how we're going to do it, and how that customer benefits, I think we're, if any business can do that, I think you're better suited to not only help your business thrive and help other businesses thrive, but really communicate to the rest of the world uh, this is how we show up. This is what our culture is. So I think the simple answer to me at this point um, is clarity. And how uh, how can we, just like Shakespeare did, yeah. uh, how can we choose the exact right words in the exact right order that are going to tell the story that we want our customers and prospects to know? And I think that's something that we try to strive towards, even as we do the show together, Nate. As we we really drive that, you know, it takes it takes a good story to reach out to somebody and you know make them listen to something like a podcast, a movie, a play. Mm -hmm. And there are so many stories to tell. And for a company to go out of their way to just tell the stories for for individuals all over the world in any industry, I think it's super valuable for for companies who want to strive and learn from you know, even some of their, their worst failures, because brand can, you know, make or break a company. Sure. A absolutely. You know, uh, piggybacking off of what you just said. Yeah. Uh, I think I was with Genesis. I was on the product marketing team and I, I had been with Genesis for about a year or mm -hmm. so and um, was still trying to uh, kindly kind of mentally engage with what we did as a company. And I wasn't getting it like it just wasn't working in my own head. And then I attended one of our customer events, our large customer event. Um, we used to call them CX for customer experience. And this was uh, CX18. This was in 2018. Okay. And I think it was in, in those events, there are breakout rooms where we talk about our technology and we talk about lots and lots of technical things that are often way over my head. Mm -hmm. But I had the privilege to sit in on one session where two of our customers told stories about how their businesses had been positively impacted by Genesis in times of crisis. And one of those companies was a company called Crisis Services Canada. And their whole, it, it was a it was sort of a brand new company. It was a, a, a small um, kind of scrappy <laughs> upstart at the time. And uh, the founder behind that company's passion was helping people who have had suicidal ideation and giving them some place to go to talk to, uh, giving them ears, giving them a shoulder, uh, giving them support. And knowing that the company that I worked for helped that business accomplish what they were going for and literally save lives, it was that story that really hooked me. And it was that story and the stories I heard over those couple of days of our customers using um, Genesis capabilities and platforms and products to literally save lives. That's when I thought, oh my gosh, I work for this amazing place and what we're doing does matter. You know, if we just look at contact center uh, technology, it's not very sexy sometimes. Sure, you know? sure. But when we talk about, hey, what we do is we facilitate communication between businesses and their customers. And we make it so that they can communicate seamlessly and energetically and uh, efficiently, just like they were, they could communicate with a loved one or a best friend or somebody mm -hmm. that they really needed help with. That's when I started getting really, really passionate about what we do and also about telling 
our company's story to others. And some of the ways that we tell our company's stories to others are by telling our customers' stories themselves. Absolutely. You know, let our customers tell the stories of, of what we've been able to accomplish together as a partner. And I'm super proud of what Genesis has done to with um, enabling customers and outlet to do so. So I think that we, um, uh, for those who are familiar with it, our CX Heroes program, it gives our customers a chance to highlight contact center agents in the trenches who deal with, you know, uh, angry customers, proud customers, happy customers, all of uh, across the whole spectrum. We give them a platform and um, pedestal to stand on to kind of like get up there and say, this is what we've accomplished as a company. Yeah. And let's highlight some of the, the those agents who are in the trenches. Absolutely. Uh, it, absolutely compelling stories. And just to know that we had a small part in enabling them to do that. I mean, I think that's what gets gets me up in the morning. Well, listen, I hate to cut you off and interrupt, but we do have to take a quick break, but we will be right back to continue our conversation with Nathan Bennett and our holiday host highlight. Hello, everyone. Josh Reed here, producer of Take a Moment. And during our conversation with Nathan Bennett, he talked about the defining moment that really drove home that what we do here at Genesis really does add value to our customers. And that moment for him was during his time with Crisis Services Canada, winner of the CX Heroes program within Genesis. For additional information, check out the resources at the bottom of your screen on Genesis.com, where you can learn how to nominate your own CX Hero, as well as read the story that Crisis Services Canada had to tell. And also note that during this holiday season, we will be taking a brief break, but we will return with new episodes on January 8th, where we will continue our conversation in the holiday host highlight featuring Mari Yamaguchi. Thanks for listening. All right, welcome back, everyone. We're going to continue our conversation with Nate. Uh, let's go ahead and jump into our next question here. I know that this is a question that you've kind of coined throughout the series that we've built together. So we talked about companies failing and mm -hmm. uh, failing at telling a compelling story and, you know, really connecting with their customers. Uh, what was one of your biggest failures? Something that, you know, you you completely bombed and you think back on it and it might be a learning experience. But back then it was just something that you considered to be a, a, a massive failure in your life. To be completely and totally honest, I think one of the hardest things in my life that I felt like was a failure. Mm -hmm. I got married when I was kind of fresh out of grad school as a young, um, I think it was 24, and uh, she was 22. And, um, you know, in a lot of ways, unfortunately, that marriage didn't last. It, it uh, I think we got, actually, we got divorced uh, a couple years later, like 2000 six, I guess. And man, I, you know, really, really difficult thing. Obviously any, any divorce is, is really tough. I grew up in, as did, you know, my wife at the time, um, uh, we both grew up in really, really religious, uh, pretty strict uh, environments. And so it was a, a kind of environment where, you know, divorce is looked on very, very poorly and kind of not accepted as an option at all. And so we went through that, you know, it was by, it was no fault of me or her. It was just, we were very young. I think we kind of rushed into things. We didn't really know who we were as individuals. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, no no ill will towards her at all. Um, but I think we were just really young and kind of didn't have our like priorities straight. 
Um, and that was tough, really, really yeah. tough. And, and I lost friends because of that. Um, you know, there were people that would associate with me from either school or church or whatever at the time that no longer associated with me just because of having, you know, it was kind of like the scarlet letter situation. I had a big D on my chest for divorce and like, oh, how could you have, you know, gone through that? Um, but man, am I happy that I went through that. I am so thankful that I had that opportunity to, to learn, uh, who I was, to learn some of the bad things about me, uh, you know, as a person or some of the things that I needed to work on to be better suited as a human being. I got to know myself better. I got to know, uh, what it meant to be a better partner from that. And man, you know, thankfully today, I, I actually just got married on October 6th. Congratulations. Um, this last Congratulations. year. Thank you very much. And man, I, I am so, so thankful for the amazing partner and wife that I have now and the amazing relationship that we have now. And I could just never have experienced that. I just wouldn't have been ready to experience that if I hadn't been through some, some pretty rough stuff uh, a long time ago in my life. And so, man, I couldn't be more thankful for my life now, but my life now couldn't have happened if I hadn't had, if I hadn't failed in that way uh, yeah. in the past. So I guess, you know, that's out of so many failures, I guess, you know, if I had to say what my favorite one is, I think it would be that one. It certainly taught me the most. Um, I learned and, you know, growing can be really, really painful sometimes. And that was the pain that I needed uh, to grow up in a lot of ways. And I'm still growing, of course. Uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I, I guess, I guess that's, that's, that's my favorite failure as painful as it was. I appreciate you sharing. I know that that's uh, super personal. So we, uh, I yeah, appreciate but, the transparency you know, and everything. Hey, our, our listeners are our family, our growing family. Exactly. Being, uh, that we're coming up on the holidays, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about holidays with Natty B, uh, holidays with Nathan Bennett. <laughs> Uh, could you tell us a little bit about some of the traditions that you grew up celebrating during the holidays and what are some traditions that you started on your own? You know, I think, okay, so this is a probably a weird tradition that I haven't heard anybody else do and it was specific to my family and I don't know how, where it came from. But you know how like most families have traditional stockings and it looks like a Christmas stocking and it hangs over the hearth and, yeah, you know, absolutely. it's got everybody's name on it. It's crocheted and, mm -hmm. you know, you stuff it with an abundance of candy or whatever. Well, we didn't do that growing up. We didn't have stockings and maybe it was because we didn't have a fireplace growing up. But instead, uh, I'm the youngest of four boys. Uh, okay. I have three older brothers who are a lot older than I am, seven years older, 10 years older and 11 years older than I am. So we never had stockings per se, but instead we would wake up Christmas morning and at the foot of our beds was one of my dad's black dress socks. Like my dad wears one sock and it's this like black sock that I'm pretty sure he gets from a hardware store. And it has, like I don't even think he goes to like a clothing store to get these socks. Pretty sure like they sell them at, <laughs> at the, the neighborhood hardware store so you can get like your lumber plus a pack of socks. Love it, love it. Yeah, so he had these black nondescript socks with like a green stripe on the toe. And we would wake up every morning and there would be one of my dad's socks stuffed with things. Usually at the toe, so I'll go from the toe of the sock. The toe was usually had a, like an orange, like a very large orange in it, like the fruit. 
And then on top of that, you had like a little like fun size Snickers or bite sized candies and maybe like some Hershey Kisses. And then there might be like a Matchbox or a Hot Wheels car in there and uh, usually mints for some reason, because maybe like, you know, our, our, our parents were hinting that we should mint up sometimes. Apparently, yeah. Uh, yeah. And then, you know, sometimes there'd be like $5 or $20 in there or something like that and like a little toy. And for some reason, like this was this was what Christmas stockings were to me. And so when I would share that with other people or other kids at school, everybody would always look at me strangely when I was like, yeah, you know, when your dad, you know, leaves one of his socks full of fruit and candy at the head, at the foot of your bed, that's Christmas, right? And everybody else is like, what are you talking about? But I do remember um, when you would take the all the cool stuff out of the sock. We, of course, we didn't need an orange. Like if we wanted an orange, we could just go downstairs to the fruit bowl and get an orange. But um, leaving the orange in the toe of the sock uh, in my brother's, my older brother's mind created this uh, medieval weapon. Oh my God. So if you put it, so if anybody's looking to defend themselves at a pinch, if you've got an orange in a sock, you can create a, like a medieval mace situation. Yep. Just a makeshift flail. A makeshift ready to flail. Go. Yeah. And so uh, I do remember getting pummeled by uh, uh, orange filled socks uh, by my brothers until the juice started coming out of them. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. So that, you know, if you want my, my Christmas tradition is getting beat with <laughs> orange filled socks. And not only were you being beat with orange-filled socks, but you're also being told that not only uh, does is that going to happen, but your breath smells. So you yeah, just your mint breath up. smells. <laughs> I know it was a really, <laughs> really what a downer on Christmas. But like, I love that aspect of our Christmas holiday so much, and it was so cool when I started. Um, when I met my now wife's uh, parents, my 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 in-laws now, who are amazing, amazing people, uh, and they do Christmas like they go all out like mm -hmm. the house is beautiful it's like a winter wonderland um the first christmas i was away from home and spending or away from my parents and spending it with my now in-laws my mother-in-law is the sweetest kindest most creative person in the world and she knew that i was kind of missing home and it was kind of a bummer to not be home for christmas and uh she they had like an actual stocking for me that my now wife had had made uh, had knitted, had created with her own hands. It's had my name on it. So they had that like official stocking hanging with the rest of the family stocking. But my mother-in-law also included a black dress sock with oh. an orange at the bottom. And she stuck like candies and breath mints and stuff like that in there. Yeah, just because she knew that was like my my one like weird tradition thing. And she has done that uh, every Christmas I've, I've spent with the family uh, in the following years. So that was really, really cool. As far as... Um, Things that we are starting now, um, one of the awesome things of, that my wife has brought into this Christmas tradition mix is the concept of the elf on the shelf. Oh, okay. So yep. when I was growing up, my, like my mom, like it was, there was no Santa Claus. Like she let me in on the secret, like, you know, at age three, there's no Santa Claus. People, that's not real. That's not what we celebrate in this house. Um, but you need to be cool about it. Like if you're ever talking to other kids and they do believe in Santa Claus, like don't spoil it for them. But you just know that it's not Santa Claus, right? So there wasn't a lot of Santa like memorabilia or anything like that growing up. So I wasn't familiar with the elf on the shelf thing. So my wife introduced me to that uh, when when uh, we started living together, and it's the coolest thing in the world. So we have three elves. They each have names. I'm not going to tell you what they are because it's just too embarrassing. Okay. Um, <laughs> but they're two boy elves and a girl elf. And uh, somewhere when we when we put up our Christmas stuff, 
and they put up the tree and the lights and all that stuff, the, the elves come out and my wife and I take turns hiding these elves throughout the, the house and waiting for the other person to find it. And like the other person can't rehide the elves until they found all three and the set is complete again. And we're, our house is, we have a good sized house, but it's not gigantic by any, by any means. But I'm running into the, the thing now where I've got to start putting these elves up in like ceiling vents, <laughs> pouring down or like I'm, you know, um, my wife did a cool thing where she, we have this like Christmas like garland stuff on our dining room table that looks really nice. And one of the elves was like buried in some of the garland with only the face oh my popping God. <laughs> out. And like, I will walk past this, you know, elf staring at me time and time again. And my wife is like, oh, you didn't see any little eyes looking at you? No? Oh, well, they see you and stuff like that. So some nightmare fuel right yeah, there. Yeah, night, nightmare fuel. You never know if you're going to wake up and there's an elf like hanging over your your face as you, as you sleep. So uh, that is definitely a tradition that we will be carrying over uh, when and if we do have kids. And uh, it's creepy, it's nerdy, and I couldn't love it anymore. I absolutely love that. And I actually might might take that for my wife and I, because we're looking to start our own traditions in some way. And I think that idea is just super great. I know, I know. And so, like, you know, I feel like my my method of hiding is to almost completely hide the elf, but there has to be like one little, so like yep, I'll hide yep. the elf when only the little tip of the of the hat is is poking out. And um, um, my wife gets upset at me when they're hid too well. Like I literally, I emptied out half of a Kleenex box. Okay. And I, I, I opened the side of the Kleenex box with like surgical precision so that it wouldn't look like it was torn into. I stuffed the elf in there so that when you pulled the last Kleenex out of the box, the elf would be like looking at you. And uh, and then I closed the box. I like taped the box in such a way uh, that you couldn't see that it had been taped back together at all. Like it was, I, I was very very proud of it. And um, that elf was missing for a long time. And my wife was like, "Where is he? Where is he?" And I'm like, "I don't know." And this this Kleenex box happened to be right by her bed. It was like on her oh bedside table. And Getting I was like, he's, "Yeah, he's closer to you than you know." Um. So when when she. <laughs> When she finally found him, I think there was there was a a large eye roll. <laughs> That's hysterical. No, what I feel if I ever did this with my wife, I I, I fear that I'm going to run into the issue because she, she's a, she's a crafty woman, and I feel like I would hide them super well. And instead of her trying to, because we have a fairly large house, she'd look around the house, and if she couldn't find it, she'd just go on Amazon and buy another elf. <laughs> like, oh, see. look, I found it, and then. <laughs> I'm going to have to start like marking them all and be like, oh, no, you didn't. That's right. You have to sign the bottom of the foot. Exactly. You know, put, put all the all the Toy Story names on the bottom because I'll know. I'll know. Uh, she's taken that page out of like the old sitcoms where the like the kids goldfish would die under yep, the parents' watch. Exactly. So they would go replace the goldfish and there'd be something just off about it. Yep. You already you know? know. Yeah. It's not Nemo, is it, mom? No, you killed Nemo and you went and bought another one. Well, uh, this has been a super great conversation. I've got three rapid fire questions for you just to oh, no. kind of end today's recording. So okay. uh, first question is, what is one piece of technology you cannot live without? Oh, you know, I want to say something like obvious, like my phone. But sure, like sure. I've lived, I lived so long without a cell phone that I think I'd probably live without it. Oh, I will say, so I paid like $20. And I got, <laughs> this is embarrassing. I got an electric um, can opener and, 
And, and it's this can opener, it's like this little, it looks like a mouse and it, and you put it on top of the can and you just press a button and let it go. You just take your hands off and this thing like turns on top of the can and then it knows when to stop and it just stops and it goes pink and you just lift the thing off and the entire top of the can comes off. And I know it sounds dumb, but I'll buy cans of corn or like canned vegetables just so that I can watch this oh thing. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> it's so freaking funny to me. And I'm just like, I, this is the best bit of technology I've ever seen. So you know it doesn't take a lot to... Uh... To entertain Nathan Bennett. <laughs> All right, so what's the strangest gift you've ever received during the holidays? Could be a birthday, could be Christmas, could be uh, Hanukkah, oh, anything like that. man. So, again, my, my wife did this amazing thing a couple years back when we were uh, just uh, still dating. We were just, uh, I don't think we were engaged yet. And she enlisted the help of a number of different artists that she knew, painters and sketchers and, and illustrators. And um, she contracted them to draw or paint pictures of the two of us together, but like in, in some sort of scenario. Like she would tell them a couple things about us. Like for instance, um, she mentioned like, hey, we're both, you know, my, my, my boyfriend and I are big um, horror movie fans. So that's an element of us. So one of the artists took and made us both like vampires in her piece. Okay. And, um, and in Adair's, uh, in the illustration of Adair as a vampire, she has like my heart, like from my chest, but like, uh, you know, but she's looking at it very lovingly and she's looking at me very lovingly. And like, we're both like smiling and we have like vampire teeth on us or something. I mean, it sounds so weird, but it no, was like great. the most adorable, like cutest, coolest, stinking thing ever. And now we have them all framed and they're up in our house and stuff like that. But the way that she introduced me to this gift was uh, she gave me, before she before I saw any of the rest of them, she's like, okay, so here's like my big present for you for, for uh, Christmas. And I was like, okay, what's the, you know, so I'm opening it and opening it and I open it. And it's this uh, very thin um, piece of, I don't know, I guess it's whatever painters paint on, whatever that paper is. I don't know. I'm so yeah. stupid, but whatever. And um, apparently it, it was this, awful awful watercolor painting of the two of us <laughs> okay. and we just look like some weird humanoid like it was modeled directly on a picture that had been taken of us that my wife had uh, had given to this artist and the artist was so bad like just so terrible yep and in fact i think was just like starting like she was just starting to paint or something so she tried to do this like like for like portrait of us and it looked so bad like have you seen the internet lists of like tattoos gone wrong yeah where they yes, like yes, try yes, and yes. like try and do like somebody's uh kid's face on their arm yep, yep. and then like it just the no like, regrets thing exactly yep. yeah exactly <laughs> that so it was this awful awful thing and i opened it and i went oh wow this is wow <laughs> this is very like and she let me struggle with it oh, for just no. a little bit and she because she wanted to see me sweat like how would i compliment this gift um and i was like this is really wow this is, is something. something i am gonna frame <laughs> this so eventually oh, she God. let me off the hook and she showed me like this the other like six like really really cool portraits that have been done of us that were hilarious and really really well done um so that when i think of odd things that come to mind just opening that first portrait was 
one of those things where I was like, how am I going to compliment this horrible, horrible thing that I'm looking at? <laughs> and that's to this day, that's the only one that's not hanging up in our house. And I always, I tell my wife all the time, like, we've got to hang that one up because it's so priceless. And it's so bad, dude. Like, it's so bad. Yep. You got to put it in, like right in the foyer, right? When you walk into the that's house. What that's I want. exactly that's actually what where the see. rest of them are. The rest yes, of them are yes. right in our foyer. But yeah, she's, I don't think she's having that. <laughs> all right. Last question, Mr. Bennett. What would be your dream acting role of a lifetime? Oh, wow. Uh, oh, man. This is such a bummer of an answer to disappoint people, but because I'm <laughs> such a nerd. But like, I, I think uh, if I could play Iago uh, from Othello, Shakespeare's Othello, yeah, yeah. Uh, on stage with some like awesome actors or something like that, I think I would just, I could, you know, die and go to heaven very, uh, very, very happily after that. That's short and sweet. That's my dream role right there. That's amazing. Well, Nathan Bennett, it's Josh been Reed. an awesome, uh, awesome half hour or 45 minutes with you just to kind of like, you know, get to know you uh, on a more personal level and give our audience a, l- a little sneak peek into the live of Nathan. Bennett. So <laughs> yeah, I really appreciate big, that. What a big stinking nerd I am. Well, thank you very much, Josh. This has been awesome. Uh, being on the other side of the interview questions is weird. Uh, and now I have a whole nother appreciation for what we put our guests through. Absolutely. So thanks, man. I love it. Not a problem. And also, for those who are listening, this is a two-parter, the first part featuring Nathan Bennett. So tune in for the next episode of Take a Moment, where we will uh, have our holiday host highlight with Mari Yamaguchi. So make sure you uh, stay tuned. I can't wait for that one. Thanks, buddy. All right. See you. Bye-bye.